Well, good morning once again. If you would uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. We're going to, to read together verses 8 through 21. Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. All right. This is God's word, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 21. And the child grew and was weaned. That's speaking of Isaac. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she, so she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite of him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach this text, I'm asking you for clarity, Lord, that we would rightly understand your word, these events and how they apply to our lives even today. And God, I ask that you would do supernatural work in our hearts. God, I pray that you would awaken in us a desire to repent of sin and trust you all the more, or maybe even for the very first time. I pray that you would do this through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't turned there already, please go to Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. You know, I, I intended uh, to make, make it through this passage in one week, 
And, you know, I was like, okay, I, I can do all this. But the more I studied and the more I meditated on and the more I, I wrote my thoughts down on, on this passage, uh, the more I realized, yeah, one week's not going to happen. So I will actually be splitting up, you know, the teaching of this passage into two weeks, unless you guys just want me to do both weeks right now. But we'll, we'll take a vote at the end. Um, but we're going we're gonna, to, you know, I, I've found a new, you know, somewhat a newfound freedom not to just smush everything into one sermon. And so we're going to take it uh, in two parts. And so we'll mainly be focusing on, on the first half um, th- this morning. So I'm, I'm very excited to preach this passage. I am. I think there, there's a great word for us. But I, I want to tell you, it is a difficult passage. Um, there, there's a lot going on here, and there's possibly a, a lot of unanswered questions, even in our minds. And so it's super important, uh, especially with texts like this, that we understand what's going on in the context, not just with this uh, passage in an isolated way. We have to you know, understand what, what led up to this and, and just the bigger picture. For, uh, you know, just to help us understand what's really going on. Because I, I was thinking about this, just even as I asked my own questions, uh, it would be really easy if you took this passage out of context to, to come to some really wrong conclusions. You could think easily that Sarah is just an overly sensitive, overly protective mother. We could easily see Abraham as just a passive father. And we could easily see God as one who, who you know, steps in and saves the day for the, these two people, um, you know, Hagar and, and Ishmael, that, that in no way deserve their circumstances. We, we could easily think those things. Um, but, but the more we look into it, I just want to tell you, I, I don't believe any of those things are, are true, at least in this instance. I'm not saying Sarah was never overly sensitive and uh, Abraham was never passive. He certainly was uh, at times. But what we need to do today, just before we even get going, is we need to put this in context so that we come to a proper and true set of conclusions here. And, and, and I really, I'll do this as quickly as I can, but I want to be thorough as well, because I know some of you maybe aren't, haven't been here every week, or uh, maybe you've just forgotten the events that have taken place. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to have to run through this. So the first thing we need to understand is who Ishmael is. So Ishmael laughed, the, the son of the slave woman, uh, he, he laughs. But, but who is he, you know, that laughed at Isaac? Well, we kind of got to take it all the way back to the beginning of, of where we meet Abraham in Genesis. And that, that's uh, Genesis chapter 12. God makes Abraham some incredible promises. I'll, I'll just read those for you. 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's some incredible promises packed into those uh, three verses. Really, just the second two verses have the promises. Uh, But one major aspect that that we've been looking at so much as we've been going through Genesis is that God said he would make of Abraham, Abram, Abraham, a great nation. And he says there in verse 3 that through Abraham and through this nation that all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's great plan of redemption 
I need you to understand this. God's great plan of redemption was going to happen through Abraham and in this great nation that would come through him, through his uh, posterity. And that, that's really important. That's what God's really saying here. I'll bless all the families of the earth. That's, that's talking about redemption. And that's great. Those promises are incredible, but there's one problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. The, the text makes it very clear. And so they weren't able to actually have any children. I don't know if you've done the math there, but no child means no nation. No nation means no blessing for all the families of the earth. No redemption. This is a big problem. <laughs> if, if you're supposed to be the, 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 the father of a nation and you can't have children. And this was the situation that Abraham and Sarah are faced with for, for many, many years. I mean, many, many years. At one point, Abraham is so frustrated and, and uh, just confused by the whole situation um, that he actually says to God, Hey, how about we just take my, my servant, Eliezer, and he can be the heir. I'll, I'll, basically saying, I'll adopt him, and so legally he'll be my heir, and you can bring the nation through this servant, my head servant, but God quickly says, no, no, Abraham, I am going to bring this, this heir through you. And at another point, uh, as you remember, Sarah is so frustrated that she says, you know what? Maybe we'll help God here. That This promise isn't being fulfilled. I'm barren. We're only getting older and so what she decides to do is rather than wait on God and him to fulfill these promises, uh, she says, hey, Abraham, why don't you just lay with my servant Hagar and we can have an heir through her? Abraham agrees, and that's where we meet Ishmael. Ishmael is born through the slave woman, the slave uh, servant or whatever you would like to say of Sarah. Ishmael, we need to get this, Ishmael is the result of Abraham and Sarah's attempt to help God along by their own uh, fleshly abilities, their own fleshly means. God was not in it. I'm not saying God wasn't over it. He's always in control, but God was not uh, condoning this. This was not what God had promised Abraham. But here we have, here, here we have Ishmael through Hagar. And for about 13 years, Abraham seems to have felt uh, that their scheme was, was successful. You know, I, I have an heir now, and he, he's growing up. 13 years go by with Ishmael as his son. Now, anyways, I've got two brothers, and I mean, we can get competitive with our parents. My, I'm the youngest uh, so my parents uh, or my brothers will say you're the favorite because you're the baby of the family You know, you're the last one. You're the one they watch grow up And so there, there's always this competition between uh, uh, siblings at some level um, But if you think about it for a second Ishmael had a special case of this an intense case of this Abraham most likely I say most likely because we don't see it 100% in the text, but he most likely grew up believing that he was the child of promise. Abraham would have no doubt told him, here are the things God promised me. 
uh, you know, and he, this is how you, you came about, but you're, you're my heir. And so there's going to be a great nation. There's going to be this, this blessing. And he'd even, you know, Abraham understood salvation from this even. And so he would have explained that to Ishmael, and he most likely believed himself to be that child of promise. And that's not to mention, uh, at just kind of a more worldly level, he certainly believed himself to be the heir not only the primary heir, but the only heir of Abraham's fortune and position. I mean, you think about that. When Abraham was a very, very rich man, kings came and talked to him because he, he was such a, a presence in the land. And now Ishmael's the heir to all of that. All, all this, this uh, not property, all, this, uh, all these possessions, all these flocks and, and herds, all these servants— and even the respect of, of being Abraham's successor. And then we can even take it down maybe an even more relatable notch. Ishmael, up to this point, was Abraham's only son. Prized, awaited son, right? They had waited many years to have a child. And, and then finally, at the age of 86, they have Ishmael. I mean, he would have been loved. He would have been showered with affection, probably spoiled rotten. I'm just saying, we don't know that again from the text, but I mean, I'm just guessing that, that he was shown a lot of respect among the camp, a lot of affection from Abraham, probably not from Sarah, from what we uh, gather, but yeah, he, he, was, he was Abraham's son. But at the 13-year mark, something traumatic happened in Ishmael's life. In chapter 17, so chapter 16, Ishmael is born. 13 years later, chapter 17 occurs, and God appears to Abraham once again, and here's what God says. Sarah, your wife, not the, not the slave uh, woman, Sarah, your wife, is going to bear you a son. This child would be the heir that God had promised. This child would be the one through whom there would be a great nation. This child would be the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed one day. Abraham even takes this news hard. He says, you know, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. I mean, what he's saying is, let's, let's just stick with Ishmael. Things are going good. I've been raising for 13 years. He's now a teenager. You know, he, he's learning and growing. Like, what, what, this is going to be really hard to just turn things on him. But God, once again, just as he did with Eliezer, the servant, God says, no, <laughs> the promise is going to be through a child that comes from Sarah. And so one year later, Isaac is miraculously born. That was the beginning of chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah, as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And his name was Isaac. It says in the next verse, it happened. It happened. What, what, what God said, you know, would, would rob Ishmael of all these things really happens. And I would just submit to you that Ishmael was probably crushed at this point. Probably crushed. He, he's Abraham's one and only prized child. He's, he's the main heir. He's got a future ahead of him. And he's considered the child of promise, of great blessing. 
And all of that is taken away as this crying baby comes into the world. <laughs> I know um, even Nora has faced some of that of like, wait a second, I thought I got all the attention. You know, uh, sorry, there's another child. Ishmael would have felt that exponentially harder as he's kind of pushed into the background. That's the context that we are coming to this in. It is not just a, a simple family relationship, but it's so important that we understand that context as we move forward uh, in the text today. My plan for how I want to walk through this with you is uh, I'd really like to you know, give you a principle that, that I've uh, drawn from this text uh, in my studies. So I'll give you the principle just as a point, and then we'll look at the text and see where I've drawn that principle from, and then we'll bring it back around and, and apply it to ourselves. Uh, that's how I would like to go through this today. So the first principle that I have drawn from this text is, we must not reject the promise. So if you're writing in your notes, number one, we must not reject the promise. I see that mainly in, in uh, chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, just those first two verses that we're studying today. There it says, And the child, that's Isaac, And the child grew and was weaned. That means he's no longer going to be nursing from his mother. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that he was weaned. So again, we have Isaac, the miraculous promised child, is being weaned. And this is kind of a milestone for children. uh, And and they would celebrate it in that day, which by the way, in that day, it would have probably been somewhere between the ages of three and five years old that they weaned children, just historically looking at those things. And so Abraham, so excited about this, throws a huge party to celebrate the occasion. But then we see in verse 9, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she saw the son uh, that, that Hagar had borne, that's Ishmael, laughing. This is uh, very interesting. You know, just a cursory reading of this text, and I admit that's how, how I see it if I don't dig in. We might assume that Ishmael is just laughing at a party, right? That almost seems natural. Who doesn't laugh at a party? Hopefully they're laughing if, if you've thrown a good party. So why would Sarah in the following verses be so enraged at this laughter? I'll tell you, I shouldn't give opinions on these things, but I, I really don't appreciate the, the ESV translation on this. I, I believe even like the KJV uh, gives, it, gives a different word that I believe explains it a little better. Uh, the Hebrew word here, see if I can pronounce this, is um, sahak, which is the root of Isaac, by the way, laughter, right? Isaac's name means laughter. We looked at that last week, and here we have, though, a different kind of laughter. Now, I, I will say sometimes it obviously does just mean laughter, but it carries uh, a more dubious tone other, other times. Let me show you just from a couple of texts where this word is used, and we can see possibly why Sarah was so angry. Genesis 19, 14, I'll just read it to you, is when uh, the the cities are going to be destroyed. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, 
who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, to be joking. Now, the, the idea here, if, if someone's doing that, they're joking, hey, these men have come in, into uh, Sodom and, and they're telling me that, that it's going to be destroyed and they think that he's joking, that would be mocking those people. Hey, we better be careful. The whole city is going to be, you know, taken over with uh, fire and brimstone. Whoa! That is what they thought that Lot was doing. Again, we talked about it before. Lot should have made it more clear to them. Hey, I'm really not joking. Uh, but either way, that's, that's what they thought. They thought that he was making a mockery of uh, the, these, um, these visitors who said that the cities were going to be destroyed. Genesis 29, 14 uh, I think that's right. It might be 39. Anyways, it doesn't matter. It does, but <laughs> for, for our purposes, it's not a huge deal. When Joseph, so we're, we're talking about Joseph at this point, on down the line, he's framed by Potiphar's wife. You remember that? He, he's been working in Potiphar's house, and he's, uh, you know, worked his way up. He's now highest in command in Potiphar's house, just, just under Potiphar only. But Potiphar's wife um, has a special interest in Joseph, you could say. She wants to know him a little better. And so when he gets away one time and she finds a way to uh, kind of ambush him, this is what she says to, to the servants. Um, she says, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. That's that word. He's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. So her point is, okay, uh, my husband has brought in this man, Joseph, and he, he's worked his way up here, and he's got all this power and all this freedom in the house. But you know what his real intention was? His real intention was, was to make a mockery of us. He works his way up only to sleep with uh, the... the uh, the master's wife. I mean, that, that's making a huge mockery. Of course, she's lying, right? We need to understand she, she's totally lying, but that's what she's inferring. We see that um, further in, in verse 17 of that same chapter. But the intention and the usage of this word is to make a mockery of us. And there are more examples of this usage. I just wanted to give you that, that idea. I, I looked, and um, of the 12 verses where this word appears other than talking about actual Isaac which again is the same word but so when it's not a proper noun for Isaac it appears 12 times eight times of those it clearly means mocking or taunting not just laughing ha 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 it is a, a mocking that's going on here so this is not just laughing even just from the evidence we see in the old testament but I'll show you an even stronger evidence than that. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to interpret and explain this event to us in Galatians 4.29. This stuff gets complicated. You guys will have to hang with me a little bit. But in Galatians, Paul is, is recounting what happens to, to Ishmael and Isaac what happened in this situation, and he's comparing that to their present situation of people coming into their church and uh, the way that they were treating them, you know, trying to get them to believe another gospel. He says this. Here we go. Verse 29 of, of uh, Galatians 4. But just as at the time 
he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Again, I know that's confusing out of context. So it says there, um, he who was born according to the flesh. Who, who's that talking about? It's talking about Ishmael. He was born according to the flesh. This, this was Abraham and Sarah's effort to use their own means apart from God to fulfill his promise. So that's, that's Ishmael's nickname here. The, he who was born according to the flesh. And then it says there, um, he, him who is born according to the spirit. Who is that talking about? Well, that, that's Isaac. We remember, I hope you guys remember this uh, from last week and, and other weeks. It was impossible for Isaac to exist, humanly speaking. Sarah is 90 years old. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah has already been barren. Paul even, igno- I mean, uh, Abraham, uh, Romans, I guess, tells us that he acknowledged he was as good as dead, uh, reproductively speaking. That's Romans 4. Uh, tells us that about Abraham. He, he understood that his body was as good as dead for reproduction, and yet this child is born. How? By the power of the Spirit. So Isaac is the child who was born according to the Spirit. So it says here, just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. I mean, that, that's a little different than laughing. What did he say there? He didn't say, you know, ma- made fun of. No, it says persecuted Isaac, the, the, the son of promise. So we can conclude from all of that, the usage of that word uh, in Hebrew, and then again, Paul's interpretation, a spirit-inspired interpretation in Galatians 4, that Isaac, there's just no question about it, Isaac was not simply or innocently laughing. This is not just an overly sensitive or overly protective mother watching this happen. He was mocking and taunting the child of promise. He was persecuting the child of promise. Okay. We need to think about this again in context. This is why I gave you the context before we began. This may be one of the most sad events in Scripture um, I don't know. I guess you could list it up against 20 other, 100 other sad instances. But we see here Ishmael, born into the family of Abraham, treated as a son of Abraham, the man of promise. Think about that. Ishmael literally could not have possibly been any closer to the promises of God than living in Abraham's house under Abraham's teaching and tutelage. This is as close as you get. His own father received the promises, certainly rehearsed those promises with him over and over again, and here are the implications of that. In addition to that, I mean, this is crazy, In addition to that, he got to watch a bona fide miracle happen before his very eyes. Okay, my father is 100 years old. My stepmom or whatever you want to call Sarah is 90 years old. She's been barren her entire life. And then all of a sudden, we get this promise that it's going to be Sarah that bears the child. And then a year later, the impossible, impossible happens he watched a miracle of god 
not just a fluke even. You might say, oh, well, these, these um, more elderly people had a child. No, God promised, hey, in a year from now, you're going to have this child, and then it happens. That is a bona fide miracle. There's just no way around that. It would have been completely, completely evident to Ishmael. Remember, this is 13 years later. He's not a two-year-old. He understands what's going on here. Isaac is born. The miracle happens. Ishmael knew. He was acquainted with. He was around. He was even saturated in the truth and promises of God. Ishmael got to witness the power of God. And what does he do with all these incredible advantages? Well, he laughs, he mocks, he scorns, he persecutes, he rejects the child of promise. Now, it would have been very difficult. I understand that. I just want to say that. Again, we, we don't want to get this out of uh, real life. He had to accept the forfeiture of his, inter- of his in- inheritance. He had to accept no longer being the favored son. Even worse, in order to be a partaker of the promise, he had to lower himself under the child of promise. His little brother, who's just now getting weaned, he has to lower himself, submit himself under this child of promise. These things grab his attention. Here's what I'm losing in this situation. And instead of being blown away by this amazing opportunity, this amazing uh, grace of God that has poured on him to be so close to the promises, so, so uh, just saturated in all of this, he's so distracted by what he loses that he rejects the child of promise. He persecutes the child of promise. So we need to understand here, Ishmael is not an innocent victim in this story. Quite the opposite. He is the persecutor. (laughs) He's the one doing the bad here. He had every opportunity to take part in God's eternal blessing, but he rejects the promised child. He, he forfeits all of that by rejecting this promised child. Now, that's what he did. He, he's no longer under the, the Abrahamic covenant blessings with eternal implications. And there's a parallel here that I want to draw for us today that, I mean, it's almost impossible to miss um, if, you, if you're thinking it through a little bit. The parallel is because Ishmael couldn't submit himself under the promised son, he couldn't be with the father. Remember that? He's cast away. In the same way, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear, if we don't submit ourselves fully, totally counting the cost we don't submit ourselves under the promised son jesus christ then we cannot be with the father you see that parallel there ishmael couldn't submit himself under this 
uh, that this child, he couldn't humble himself under this child of promise. So he couldn't be with the Father either. In the same way, if we do not submit ourselves under the Son of true promise, Jesus Christ, then we cannot have the Father. I just want to list for you, this is just so important for our lives and, and for the way we talk to people and the way we think about religion. 1 John 2.23 No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Whoever, or sorry, everyone who believes, this is 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. I think I might have copied and pasted the wrong verse there. But anyways, Luke 10, 16, the, Jesus says, the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Does that sound about like a parallel here? Whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. God the Father sent Jesus. If you reject me, you reject him. Luke 12, 9, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You know, it's an interesting thing. I've had this conversation a, a large handful of times. Uh, people who say, me and God are good. Yes, I believe in God. I believe he's powerful. I, I pray to him all the time. And I simply ask. I mean, it really is this simple. What do you think about Jesus? Always make sure you find out what they think about Jesus. And to say, well, he, he, was, he was a good guy. I don't really believe all that the Bible says about him, that he's truly uh, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. I tr don't truly believe that he took the, the burden of our sins, the punishment for our sins upon himself on the cross. I don't really believe that he rose from the dead, but I believe he was a good guy and probably even did some, some cool things, you know. That person does not have the Father. They are not good with God. They will not inherit eternal life. There is but one way to inherit that, to, to have the inheritance of our Father. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 1, 12, John 1, 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, that's Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You reject him, you are cast out. You're opposite of adopted, disowned. This is what the Bible tells us. But you come to God through Jesus Christ and you get the Father. You become a child of God. It really doesn't get much clearer than these verses. We, we can't come to God on our own terms, right? People, people, oh man, I was talking to a, a guy. It's actually my, what would he be? It's my cousin's new husband. Um, and he was just saying how he, he lived in Budapest, Hungary for, I guess, three or four years. He said he has become much more aware of cultural differences that we don't even realize. He said, what I've realized about the American culture is we don't even realize how much we just assume freedom and autonomy and choice are inherent human rights. 
It's like, not every country is like that. Not every country gets to choose between 13 different cereals in the morning and, and out of, you know, 20 different places to eat. I mean, they go to the market and they buy some fish. Like, you know, it's like all they've got, or they just eat, if they're rich, they buy the fish, they eat the rice. Anyways, he's like, our culture just assumes we have all these choices and it blends into our religion and people believe that they can just choose how they'll come to God. It does not work that way. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Now, Ishmael's story was a sad one, right? So close to the promise. Watch this miracle. But I'll tell you something that is even more sad and more scary for me today, uh, 2,000 years later. It is very possible, even likely, that we have Ishmael sitting in this room right now. You are so close to the promise, but it's not in your heart. Still rejecting it. You may have grown up in a Christian family, may have heard the gospel from a young age, may have grown up going to church every time the doors are open, Sunday school, Bible studies. I bet you even blend in very well. It's not that hard. Sadly, it's not that hard. You may have all that opportunity. Not every person in the world, by the way, hears the gospel from a young age, can attend church openly, has the word of God in in five different versions at their house. Not everyone has those opportunities. Those are very Ishmael-like opportunities that we have here. And yet, some of us, some of of you, uh, I, I hate to say, will still reject it. You'll say, Yeah, that's cool, but I still like to make my own decisions. I don't want to submit under the Son of Promise, Jesus Christ. I want my own way to God. I'll still go to church, but I want my own way. Or maybe we say, you know what? I kind of like my sin better than I like Jesus, and so I'm going to stick with him. I'll keep going to church, but secretly I'll just continue in sin and give myself to that. Um, Which, by the way, you you want autonomy, but you, you want to sin Uh, The Bible makes it very clear that if we give ourselves to sin, that sin is our slave master at that point. You're not a free man either way, man or woman. You could be the never-ending skeptic. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. We've seen Abraham have doubts and questions, haven't we? But a skeptic is a person who sees the truth even knows it's true, but then finds questions to to cloud that truth. They suppress that truth. Yeah, well, what what about this, though, in the Old Testament? What about that? What what about this? What about— You just don't want to submit. That's that's the never-ending skeptic. No, No answering of your questions will ever do it. At some point, you have to say, you know what? I don't ever— I don't understand every little thing in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But you know what? I do understand that God is God. I am man. I have sinned against him. Yet in his love, undeserved love, he has sent his son to die in my place for my sins. That same Christ resurrected from the dead and said, believe in me and you will have eternal life. I know that. And though I can't answer every question, I want them. That's the alternative. That's, that's the person who is not the never-ending skeptic. 
We cannot simply be near the promise or know about the promise. We have to accept the promise, submit ourselves under the promise. Anything else is to reject the promise. You may not be outright mocking the gospel. I get that. But to, to not accept it, to receive it, to, to die to yourself and, and live in God is to reject the promise. So it was with Ishmael, and so it is with some of us. We've only made it two verses so far, so I'm going to move a little further here and see how Abraham and Sarah um, respond to this rejection how they respond to this rejection of the gospel, of, of the, the promise of God. So that was the first point. We must not reject the promise. The second point, because I'm giving you the principle first, right? Number two, we must not exchange the promise. We must not exchange the promise. And I'll, I'll explain that more as we move along. We'll come to the text. I'll start in verse 9 and go through uh, verse 15. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. We just talked about that. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, this is going to be a tough passage. Um, but what I see here is we must not allow the promise, or we, we must not exchange the promise or even allow it to be exchanged. There are two kind of ways I'm going to look at this. So, was this wrong of them to send Hagar and Ishmael away? Was this mean? Was this overly harsh well we've already said at this point ishmael was clearly not just laughing with or even at isaac he's mocking he's taunting he's persecuting but more than that this is this is where you're gonna have to put your thinking caps on more than that we can actually learn from galatians where paul is again talking about this situation from the context and the way that Paul responds to it uh, a little bit more about what's going on here, about, about this sending away. So Galatians, okay, New Testament, where we're shifting gears here for a moment. You have uh, Christ has done all his work, and the, the, the gospel is spreading. Paul is going to all the, the parts of uh, the earth as far as he knows, you know. Um, and one place he comes to is Galatia. This is a group of... Um, non-Jews, so they, they'd be, you know, Gentiles. They would have been idol worshipers and pagans, but then they get saved. They trust in Christ Jesus by hearing the gospel. 
Now, the problem here is, is the Galatians, as they're, they're going along, some people come into their church. They call them the Judaizers, Jews from, uh, Jewish supposed Christians from Jerusalem come into the church and they say, hey, it's not enough that you simply believe in Jesus. You have to also become a Jew with all the ceremonial laws, all the, the, the uh, different traditions we have. So, I mean, I could go through a list, but, you know, basically you have a bunch of do's now in addition to Jesus. You can't do this. No, 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 no. That's not what a, a Jew does. You, you, but you must do this. Yes, and then you can have salvation. That's what these people were telling them. They came in to the church and were trying to turn the church. Paul says this in Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he's saying, there are these people that want to turn you, they want you to exchange the one true gospel for a false gospel of works plus Jesus. And so, Paul spends the entirety of Galatians, you know, showing the, the reality of his apostolic ministry, how, how Jesus himself was the one who explained the gospel to him. These things are all, all in there. He explains how no other gospel could possibly save them. But finally, when we come to chapter 4 of Galatians, where we're talking about here, Paul goes on to tell them how they should respond. So how do you respond to these Judaizers who are distorting the gospel, want, trying to get you to exchange the gospel? He says in uh, verse 28 of, of uh, chapter 4 of Galatians, he says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Then you go to verse 30, the very next verse. He says, But what does the Scripture say? How do we respond to this? But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's interesting. Paul's prescription for them, uh, rather than looking back and condemning what Abraham and Sarah says, or what Abraham and Sarah did by casting out Ishmael and Hagar, he says, that's what you guys should be doing. You shouldn't be entertaining these truth uh, uh, twisters, these, these manipulators, these people who are trying to get you to exchange the gospel for a lesser, untrue, unsaving one. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Cast him out. He goes on to say in just the very next chapter, verse 7, Chapter 5, verse 7, he says, you were, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He says, you had the true gospel. Who hindered you from this? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This isn't from God, he's saying. And he says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. <laughs> Paul is, again, you, know, you think about this leaven. Uh, we actually talked about this last Sunday night, 
but leaven is, you know, yeast, basically. You, you have a, a big lump of dough, and you take just a little bit of leaven, and you work it in, and then what happens? You, you leave it sitting there, and it rises, the whole lump, not just one little, you don't just get like a bubble on the side of the lump. The whole thing rises. And the way this is being used here and in, and in other places, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 5 through 6, Paul said this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. His point is, if, if you allow even just a little bit of this false teaching, just a little bit of the distortion of the gospel, just that little bit will infiltrate not only you, but the whole church. And just as the, the, the lump of dough is changed in its entirety, so will the church be changed in its entirety. And so cleanse the old leaven. Cleanse out this, this wickedness. Cleanse out this distortion of truth. This is what Paul is telling us here. And so, oddly enough, you know, we, we take that back and almost apply that to Ishmael. And evidently, his, his persecution, evidently bound up in what Paul means by persecution, is he was not only mocking or taunting Isaac— the true child of promise, he's actually trying to subvert the child of promise. You know, hey, I mean, by the way, that's what we do. You know, we make fun of someone that, that we're intimidated by. What are we trying to do? We're trying to get that person on our side, and before you know it, we're getting more people on our side. And, and finally, we, we kind of push out that other person. They, they, they intimidated me. They were in my way uh, somehow, so I'll get a group of people on my side, and, and I'll surpass them. Evidently, that is what Isaac was trying to do. He's trying even to get, uh, at some level, Abraham to exchange which child he, he favors, which child becomes this heir of the promise. So what do they do? They cast him out. And we'll talk more about this, that part next week, but the, the, the principle is there. We must not exchange the promise. We must not reject the promise. You know, it's outright saying, no, I don't want this, I don't want this. But we also must not exchange the promise for a lesser promise, for a, a less true. I mean, at some point, Paul says, there is no other gospel. At what point that happens is hard to know. I think of um, uh, just even, you know, the Catholic Church, not every Catholic, but you look at the Catholic Church, and by their tenets, their faith is very mingled with works, almost to the point that they put merit on you for your salvation, and you must do these things in order to be saved. And, and I say, man, you're, you're exchanging an incredible freedom, right? That's a Galatians 5 1 for, for freedom's sake Christ has set you free therefore do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery the yoke of bondage why would we exchange this beautiful gospel for, for a lesser one one that does not truly free us by the way freedom comes in different forms freedom from a works-based righteousness I've got to earn it I got to earn it I got to earn God's favor but also freedom from slavery to sin I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna you know 
love on my sin. No, you're a slave to that sin. The true gospel that we are tempted sometimes to exchange is freedom. It is beautiful. It is saving. And God is glorified in it. And so, Paul's point again in Galatians 4, and even a principle we can draw from Genesis 21, is we must not reject the gospel, but we must not exchange the gospel. And I would say further, we must not allow the gospel to be exchanged. That means that all of you, I mean, I I understand that specifically I am a a God-appointed watchdog over this church to protect the flock, but you guys are too. Uh, I mean, the Bible is very clear that there will be false teachers. That means people like me will come into the church and they will try to tickle your ears, give you this lesser gospel, whether by self-righteousness or by lasciviousness. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I don't know why we would feel our church would be immune and we cannot let it happen. We must not exchange the gospel. We must do the hard thing, even when that is cast someone out. Why? To protect the church and in hopes that they would turn in repentance, Paul says elsewhere. They need to see, hey, I I can't just be doing this. But I think of just exchanging the gospel. Too many of us are, are, are too easily persuaded into changing our theology based on what? This, this new book that everyone's talking about, this, this great author, she's so empowering. He, he's just, he's so riveting to read, and it's just blowing my mind. You know why it's blowing your mind? Because it's probably not even true. I'm not saying a good book can't blow your mind. I'm just saying, I could list names of books. I say it's garbage. Throw it away. You're exchanging the beauty of the pure, unadulterated gospel for something less. I think of, uh, <laughs> anyway, I know on Facebook, one of you who I'm looking at right now, uh, talking about another church in our town, adulterated gospel, perverted uh, beliefs about God, the Holy Spirit. It's not okay. Just because their church is blowing up in numbers does not mean they are blowing up in godliness. We protect our souls, we protect those around us, we warn them, we watch over them. If the gospel, if this promise is so great, we must not reject it. We must not exchange it. We must not allow it to be exchanged. This is, uh, just as I was studying, I thought of the value of this promise, the promise that both Abraham and uh, Sarah had, and they, you know, had to push out Ishmael to protect Isaac from, from this. But even in our own lives, the, the, the value of the promise we've been given in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 13, through 46, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The promise is a treasure in the field. It's a pearl of great value. In fact, those things are nothing compared to the greatness of the actual promise. That's just an illustration. 
These people saw this, this, this treasure and this pearl as so valuable that they sold everything in order to have it. So I want to press upon you possible Ishmael's. It's a great promise. Do not hold on to anything that would make you reject this promise. Lay down your life. You must die in order to have life. Die to yourself. Die to your desires, your plans. It doesn't mean none of those things will ever be fulfilled. It means they're no longer yours to hold tightly. You're, you're giving it over to Jesus. Take my life. I want you to take my sin. I want your righteousness. I want your power. Because this is a great treasure. Salvation. Eternal salvation. Eternal forgiveness for our, our long record of sins. And eternity with God. Do not fear what you will lose. Ishmael feared what he would lose if he didn't remain the child of promise and he rejected the truth. Do not fear what you will lose like Ishmael. Take hold of the promise. Submit to the Son. And I would say for us who are, who are saved, if, if this gospel really is like treasure hidden in a field, like a pearl of great value, we should be protecting it with everything that we've got, both our own hearts why would you let this pearl? You're not going to let someone come in and start just taking some of that treasure out of your field. No, no, no. Protect your heart in the true gospel, the true promise, and protect others as well. And I would say, again, I might be taking these uh, um, applications too far. It's not exactly found in the text. But if the promise really is that great, if it really is that important, the one and only way unto salvation if it really is like treasure hidden in a field and like a pearl of great value, shouldn't we be telling people where to find it? Let's pray. Father God, we look at the life in this fork in the road for Ishmael, and it should strike a little fear in all of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that that fear would lead us to be reflective. That we would see whether or not we have truly trusted in Christ Jesus and understanding that that's far more than just a mental assent. It is a, a faith. It is a, uh, a falling in his arms. It is a rejection of our own old fleshly ways. It is clinging to him for all that he is. God, if there is anyone in this room who is currently rejecting like Ishmael, let them submit themselves under the child of promise. No matter the cost, no matter the cost, the treasure is greater. And God, I pray for all of us that we would, like Abraham and Sarah, Watch to not exchange the promise, Lord. Let us grow in the truth, build on the foundation, and not be diverted in any way, Lord. And help us to protect those who might be drawn away by any false teaching. And God, I do pray 
She would make us effective in this area that we would share about this promise, share about this treasure that is found only in Christ Jesus. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. We'll now respond uh, as Douglas plays a song. I, I do just ask you to reflect and do business with God. I'll be up here if you'd like to pray with me. The stairs are always open if you want to come up and kneel at them.